Well, thank you for joining us on this Resurrection Sunday. I hope all of us were able to spend some time this weekend meditating on the significance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that occurred 1,983 years ago at this very time of the year. The bodily resurrection of Jesus, which occurred early on that Sunday morning, is the foundation of our faith. Without that event, there would be no Christianity, and we would not be here today studying the Bible. In this session, we will be looking at the words of our Passover lamb, Jesus, in Matthew 24, which were spoken to his disciples on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem on a Tuesday afternoon, the day before Peter and John prepared the Last Supper in the upper room. If you'd like to see a good study of the chronology of that final week of Jesus there in Jerusalem before his arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection, I would recommend the work of Romney Ashton called The Sequential Gospels. It can be obtained from Amazon.com. Before we begin, I want to mention the lesson outlines for these podcasts. There's a PDF available for each podcast. Most listeners find it helpful to have it open in front of them as they listen. If you'd like to get the PDF, simply email me and request it. If you're planning on being a regular listener to this program and would like to automatically receive the PDF as soon as it's ready, without having to request it each time, simply email me and ask to be put on the PDF list. The PDF contains all my lesson notes and resource references so that you do not have to write them down while you're listening. It's free for the asking. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org, and that preterist1 is the number one. It's not spelled out. Uh, preterist1 at preterist.org. Let's ask God for his presence and blessing on our study here today. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name for sending your Son to die in our place. We deserve nothing but your wrath, yet you graciously provided the sacrifice that would appease your wrath and reconcile us to you. You proved that Jesus accomplished that atonement and redemption for us by raising him from the dead. Thank you so very much for your mercy and your grace. What an amazing salvation you have provided for us. His resurrection and ascension gives us hope for a new immortal body and eternal life in heaven with you. By remembering the suffering and death of your dear son on Passover so many years ago, may we all be inspired to rededicate our lives to your worship and to the service of others. Use our studies here to advance your kingdom and bring you much glory throughout all generations of the age of the ages. It is in the name of our precious Savior and your only begotten Son that we pray. Amen. I get emails every week from listeners all over the country and around the world thanking us for these historical studies which have helped them understand the Bible better. If you've benefited from these podcasts, we would encourage you to become partners with us in this teaching and publishing ministry to enable us to share it with many others and so that you will share in all the good fruit that comes from it. 
Those who contribute to International Preterist Association will receive some of our latest and greatest resources as our gift to you. Simply go to our website and click on the left sidebar button entitled Make a Donation to IPA, where you can make a one-time donation or contribute monthly. Our website address is www.preterist.org. You can also make donations through PayPal. Our PayPal address is preterist1 at preterist.org. Last time, we looked at the neuronic persecution and the intense tribulation it brought upon the church in AD 64. This time, we will try to wrap up that study by looking at the tribulation on the church and the wrath outpouring which followed. We need to put these events in their proper sequence in the order in which they actually occurred historically. When we do that, it will really help us understand the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation. One of the reasons all of us misinterpreted Matthew 24 for so many years is because we fail to understand the concept of parousia as well as the sequence of events that were supposed to occur at the parousia. Growing up in a Baptist church as a futurist, my concept of the second coming was a one-day event when Christ would split the sky and round up his saints, living and dead, just before the globe was engulfed in a thermonuclear meltdown. All of that was supposed to happen not only in one day's time, but in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That was my concept of the second coming, a blink-of-the-eye event. There was no thought whatsoever of an extended period of time in which Christ would be present to reward his people and judge his enemies. But when I became a preterist, I began to notice all the things that Jesus and the apostles promised that he would accomplish at his return many of which implied much more than a one-day blink-of-the-eye event. Then I found out that the word parousia literally means an extended visit or a presence with someone for an extended period of time. It is this extended visit idea that will really help us here in our understanding of the Olivet Discourse and its statements about the Great Tribulation. Before we get into the text, we need to get that chart in front of us, the one called Chronological Arrangement of the Olivet Discourse. It's the one that I sent you along with the lesson outline. Hopefully, you have that printed out by now, or can view it on the screen while we make our comments on it. We will look at three different sections of that chart, uh, beginning with page 4, then skip back to pages 2 and 3, and finally skipping forward to pages 5 and 6. Well, let's talk about the sequencing then of the tribulation in relation to the parousia, the rescue of the saints out of that tribulation, and then the wrath outpouring. Uh, sequencing all this is easy historically, but it's not so easy when we go into the text of Matthew 24, because there we find the events somewhat arranged out of order, and there's flashbacks and flash-forwards. So uh, that chart shows how all that would be arranged if we had done it in a chronological historical fashion. 
But in order to sequence all these events, the tribulation, the parousia, the rescue of the saints, and the pouring out of the wrath, in order to sequence these properly, we need to know what the tribulation period really is and how it fits into the overall sequence of events mentioned in Matthew 24. And I believe that's our biggest challenge when we look at Matthew 24 is to figure out what it means when it talks about a tribulation. Because in some places there, it seems like it's talking about the wrath outpouring upon the Jews. And in other places, it seems like it's talking about the tribulation upon the church. So uh, that's our fundamental challenge here in our attempt to sequence these events, is to see how the tribulation figures into all of this sequence. We know from several New Testament texts that the faithful elect Christians would have to suffer persecution and tribulation before the parousia, but would not have to go through the wrath outpouring at the parousia. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Notice that word salvation there, and he's talking to Christian people. My, 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 what is this? They're going to be having some kind of salvation when they're rescued out of the wrath. Very interesting concept, and we'll see that same idea mentioned in Matthew 24. Also in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? Uh, he's there talking about the contrast between those who uh, were disobedient to the word and did not obey the gospel, and they would suffer tribulation and destruction, etc. But he says in contrast to them, uh, we will be saved from God's wrath. Now there's that word saved again. Not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? They were already forgiven. They were already saved spiritually speaking. They already had eternal life guaranteed to them. But at the parousia, they would be saved from the wrath to come. Notice he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Wait for his Son from heaven, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So there's that word rescue there. The other two texts that we looked at mentioned the word saved from the wrath. But here in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says, rescues us from the wrath to come. And then in Revelation 3, verse 10, where it's talking to some of the seven churches there in Asia, and it's talking about them being faithful to him and repenting and coming back to him and doing what's right, returning to their first love, etc. He said, if they would do that, then he will also keep them from the hour of trial that is about to come upon the whole world. And that's a reference, I believe, to the neuronic persecution that was about to happen to all the Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And he's telling them here that if they will repent and do what's right and follow his will and follow his directions, that he will save them and will keep them safe from that hour of trial that is about to come upon the whole Christian world. We also know when that wrath was supposed to be poured out. 
We can determine that from numerous passages here in First Thessalonians especially. It was during the parousia, after the saints were rescued out of harm's way, that we see Paul saying that the wrath would come. Notice he said he rescues them out of the wrath and keep them from that hour of trial that's about to come and be saved from God's wrath. We're not destined for the wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Uh, That tells us the sequencing here between the tribulation upon the church and the wrath outpouring upon the Jews. There is a two-part sequence there. First the tribulation, then the saints are rescued out of that tribulation so that they do not share in the wrath that is about to come. We see this very sequence of events laid out for us in Paul's two letters to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, as we've noticed, Paul taught that the saints would be rescued from the wrath that would be poured out on their persecutors. This means, number one, that the tribulation and persecution of the saints comes first, followed by their rescue out of that tribulation at the parousia, just before the wrath is poured out upon their persecutors. So there's a three-step sequence right there, the tribulation and persecution, then the parousia, which rescues them, and then the wrath is poured out. That same sequence is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4-10, through 10, where Paul indicates that at the coming of Christ, he would do these two things in this particular order. Number one, he would give relief to the saints, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. And then number two, he would deal out retribution, or wrath, or tribulation, to the disobedient, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. And so there's that same process again. We see tribulation upon the church. Christ comes, relieves the saints from that tribulation, and then pours out his wrath upon the disobedient. So that's the order that we see throughout Paul's writings. Uh, I don't see any exceptions to that. It seems like he's very consistent in the sequencing of these events just before and after the parousia. Now, I want us to repeat that sequence three times out loud. Or you can say it to yourself if you wish. But here's the sequence that we need to say over and over to us to fix it in our brain as we continue our discussion about Matthew chapter 24. Tribulation, parousia, rescue, and wrath. That's T-P-R-W. Tribulation, parousia, rescue, wrath. That's the sequence that we've seen here from Apostle Paul's Thessalonian letters. Now, keep that sequence clearly in mind as we look at Matthew chapter 24. Tribulation, parousia, rescue, and then the wrath. Furthermore, now, it's clear from looking at the statements in these two Thessalonian letters that Paul is drawing this sequence of events out of the Olivet Discourse. Surprise, surprise. Several Bible teachers, both preterist and futurist, have found almost two dozen similarities and connections between the Olivet Discourse and Paul's statements here in these two letters to the Thessalonians. Since Paul was speaking under inspiration, his statements have to be in perfect harmony with the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and vice versa. 
Matthew 24 has to be in sync with First and Second Thessalonians as well. That seems obvious to us, but it is not so obvious to the pre-trib rapture guys like Tommy Ice, who try to ignore the sequence in Paul's epistles and obfuscate the sequence found in the Olivet Discourse. So we need to take a look at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 to see if we can find the same sequence of events there. And I think we will, but they're not in the same order that we find them in First and Second Thessalonians. And so we'll have to rearrange them like I did in my chart to help us uh, see that proper sequence. And let's use our chart now. Uh, you want to refer to that. Find the page where it talks about Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 22. Page 4. Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 22. Take a quick overview of the context, and we'll, we'll discover that in the first 14 verses of that chapter, he's talking about events that will occur throughout the uh, transition period. It's, it's like a general overview of all those events that were going to occur during the transition period, down to the preaching of the gospel and the finishing of the Great Commission, which would occur just before the Great uh, Tribulation and the Parousia. So that's one thing we want to keep in mind is that throughout this context of Matthew 24, he does give an overview on occasions, and then he'll get real tight and go down into a specific area and give a lot of details about that one little area, and then he'll flash back out and look at the overview again. So it's very important for us to understand how this all historically happened so that we can notice what Jesus is doing as he describes all these events that are going to happen in the next 40 years. Now, there's a problem that we're going to notice as we look through Matthew 24, especially here in verse 15 on page 4 of the chart. That problem is that he talks about the abomination of desolation and then all the the trouble that they will suffer as a result of trying to flee and get out of the country before the destruction of Jerusalem happens. And so it's really kind of difficult to see what Jesus is pointing to there in regard to the tribulation and its connection to the abomination of desolation and their fleeing from the country. But notice down in verse 22, if you want to skip back to verse 22 and 23 and 24, are grouped together, showing, I believe, that he switches back to talking about the tribulation upon the church and not about the wrath that's mentioned here in verses 15 through 21. So that's a very subtle shift, of course, and that's why most of us have missed it, is because uh, unless we know the history from hindsight, we'll miss that subtle shift. But because the events are past now, we can read those events historically into Matthew 24 and see what the sequence of Matthew 24 really should be. And that's what we're doing here. But I want to point out the problem that verse 22 seems to be talking about the wrath outpouring that was mentioned in the previous verses. And so it's not obvious that it's a shift to talking about the persecution upon the church in verse 22. Now, let's define the problem a little bit. And, and this you don't need to look at the chart for. 
uh, we just want to reason a little bit through the actual biblical text itself. And you might just want to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 24 as we talk about the problem here. It's a sequencing problem. One thing we notice right away when we look at Matthew chapter 24 verses 15 through 22 is that the great tribulation mentioned in verse 21 seems to occur after the abomination of desolation appeared and the Christians fled from Jerusalem and Judea. If the abomination of desolation in verse 15 was the arrival of Roman armies around Jerusalem in 66 AD, then the flight of saints away from there in verses 16 through 20 is part of the Great Tribulation, which would be cut short for the elect saints, but not for the unbelieving Jews, Jesus says there in verse 22. Unless those days have been cut short, What days is he talking about? Well, verse 21 before that was talking about the days of their flight from the city and from Judea. If that's the same days that he's talking about, that's the way it looks on the surface reading of the text. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. All right, so there's the problem with this scenario. The futurists and even some preterists assume that the tribulation mentioned here in verses 16 through 28 is only talking about the wrath that was poured out upon the Jews during their war with Rome. If that's the case, then it means that the saints did not suffer tribulation until after the war started, and their rescue from that tribulation could not have come until after the war started. Furthermore, it's clear from Matthew 24, verse 29, and it's parallel in Mark 13, 24, that Christ would not come until after the tribulation of those days. Now you see the problem. In the previous context, it seems that the tribulation of those days is a reference to the days of vengeance and wrath to this people, according to Luke's parallel account in Luke 21, 22, and 23. This means that Christ would not come until after the wrath outpouring was finished, which was after 70 A.D. And if Christ did not come until after the wrath was poured out, then the saints were not rescued out of the wrath after all. This means the saints had to endure the whole tribulation and wrath outpouring. Notice the sequence here. Matthew 24 has the wrath already being poured out before Christ came to pour it out. And so that would be a sequence of T-W-P-R, not the T-P-R-W sequence that we saw in Apostle Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. It's a different sequence here that we're seeing in Matthew 24, if you just read straight down through the text, not using the chart that I've prepared. But Paul has already indicated that the saints would not have to go through the wrath And the numerous similarities between the Thessalonian letters and Matthew 24 tells us that he was building his sequence based on Matthew 24. And yet his sequence is not the same as Matthew 24. So what does that tell us? One or the other is not the right sequence. 
And we know that Apostle Paul is speaking by inspiration and that his sequence is very clear. It's consistent all the way through his writings. And so the only inconsistency we see in the sequencing is here in Matthew 24. And we notice that inconsistency because when we look at Luke 21, Mark 13, and Luke 17, their sequence is a little bit different suggesting that Matthew 24 was not sequenced historically. It's out of order. The events are just thrown in there. Matthew didn't know exactly how it would all shake out, but he made sure all the events were put in there, and then he has to flash forward and flash back as he talks about all these events that are going to happen in the end time and during the next 40 years of that generation. So there's a sequencing problem here, but the problem is in Matthew 24 and its parallel accounts, not in Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul has it right. He's consistent all the way through, and all of his references to the tribulation and the wrath outpouring follow the same sequence. And so the sequencing problem has to be here in Matthew. So how do we solve it? Well, I think the chart will help us in that regard. At least it points us in the right direction, I believe, to solving this sequencing problem so that it's harmonized with Apostle Paul's sequence. Notice that Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, says that Christ does not come until after the tribulation of those days. That raises the question then, what is the tribulation of those days? In the previous context, it seems to be the wrath outpouring during the war with Rome. At least that's the way most people take it. But if we define the Great Tribulation as only being the wrath that was poured out on Jerusalem, then it means that Christ did not come to rescue his saints and pour out the wrath until the wrath had already been poured out and the tribulation of those days was already over. You see the problem there? The solution must therefore be related to our definition of the tribulation. If the tribulation is only talking about the troubles that came upon the Jews after the war broke out in Judea, then we have a seeming contradiction between Jesus and Paul. However, if we define the tribulation as the whole period of persecution upon the church, including the Neronic persecution and their difficulties in Judea just before the parousia and the outbreak of the war, then I believe it would solve our problem. The tribulation then must include the persecution on the church that occurred before the wrath was poured out. The only question is whether the context will allow that redefinition of the tribulation, as well as the reassignment of some verses to that tribulation on the church. This was the idea behind my chart. And as we can see from comparing the four different accounts of the synoptic apocalypse here on the chart, none of the accounts were in strict chronological sequence. So that implies that we are free to rearrange them according to the sequence in which they actually occur. This means that the tribulation upon the church and the wrath upon the Jews are two successive phases of the one combined tribulation-wrath period. The tribulation has to be first, before the wrath outpouring. 
if we run that definition of tribulation back through the context, like I have arranged it on my chart, I believe it'll work. Notice these texts in particular. Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 14 on the chart. Here we see tribulation applying only to the Christians. In verses 9 and following, the tribulation there is talking about on the church. It's on the Christians, what they're going to suffer during that tribulation. He says you're going to be brought into tribulation, verse 9. And it seems to refer to the intensification of that persecution later on down the road. And I believe that's a reference to the neuronic persecution. And so here in verses 9 through 14, it starts out with the persecution of the church at the early transition period. And then by the time that overview of the whole transition period is over, here in these five verses, uh, it refers, I believe, to the neuronic persecution there toward the end of that transition period. Then in Matthew 24, verses 22 through 28, I think is another section that talks about the tribulation upon the church and not the tribulation that was upon the Jews when the armies began to surround Jerusalem. In verses 22 through 28, it seems that Jesus returns to talking about the tribulation upon the church when he talks about uh, those days being cut short so that the elect would be saved and rescued out of it. That's obviously talking about the saints being under persecution there in order to be rescued out of that before the wrath is poured out. And so there's two sections there where he has other material in between them And so he's flashing forward and flashing back and rearranging all this material as he talks about it. It's not in strict chronological order like we would find in Apostle Paul's account. So we want to compare these two sections, Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 14, with his section in verses 22 through 28. And I believe both of those are talking about the tribulation upon the church, which had, which had to occur before the parousia. Then they would be rescued out of that, saved out of that, when he cuts it short. And the way it was cut short is by rescuing them out of it. Until that rescue occurred, they had to flee out of the country to escape the tribulation that would be connected with the gathering of the Roman armies there to begin the war. And so they had to flee that so that they would live and remain long enough to be raptured and saved and rescued out of that tribulation. But we need to see the connection here between these two sections and that they are indeed talking about the tribulation upon the church because that second section, Matthew 24, verses 22 through 28, has been interpreted by most people to refer to the wrath outpouring. But it cannot be, because it's referring to the saints being rescued out of it and it being cut short. And we know that the wrath outpouring was not cut short. The full wrath was poured out upon the Jews. So that obviously has to be talking about the tribulation upon the church being cut short by their rescue out of it. But let's talk about this connection between these two sections that are referring to the tribulation upon the church. If they are, in fact, and I believe they are, and I think the chart shows that, if they are talking about the tribulation upon the church, then Matthew 24, verse 29, has to be including the neuronic persecution in its definition of the tribulation, because that's what the previous verses verses 22 through 28, are talking about. 
It was those days of the neuronic persecution on the church that were cut short for the saints so that the elect could be rescued out of there before the wrath was poured out. Notice that Christ has already stated in the previous context that he would save them from the tribulation by cutting short that tribulation. But the wrath outpouring was not cut short for the Jews. That tells us right away that he has changed the subject in verse 22, and that he's not talking about that wrath outpouring on the Jews that he had been talking about in those verses from 15 to 21. There's a shift in the subject here in verse 22 to the tribulation upon the church, so that when we get to verse 29, he's talking about the tribulation on the church, not talking about the tribulation upon the Jews. A very subtle shift, but I think if we look at it, we'll see it. And uh, that'll help us out of the sequencing problem here. The wrath was not cut short for the Jews. It continued until Jerusalem was totally devastated. So, verse 29 must be talking about some other tribulation that was cut short, besides the wrath outpouring. That could be the tribulation upon the church, such as the Neuronic persecution. But that raises another question. How could the tribulation on the Christians be cut short or ended if the Christians were still left around on earth while the wrath was being poured out? That means they would still be subject to persecution and tribulation. What kind of salvation or rescue would that be? It certainly would not fit Jesus' description of the angelic gathering of the elect that's mentioned in Matthew 24, verse 31, which occurs at his parousia. He said he would send forth his angels to gather together the elect. That sure sounds like a rescue of the church out of the persecution, which cut short the persecution and the tribulation and saved and rescued his people out of the wrath that was about to come. Notice all the references to cut short, chapter 24, verse 22, and saved is mentioned there twice in Matthew 24, verse 13 and 22. This is not talking about the saints finally getting forgiveness of sins given to them when the tribulation was cut short. They already had forgiveness of sins. So what was this cutting short of the tribulation which saved the elect? How was their tribulation cut short, and how were they saved from the wrath? We already know how Paul would answer that question. He says, rescues us from the coming wrath. And in the context of that book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, he's talking about the rapture, the rescue out of the coming wrath. And Jesus does not leave us guessing either. Notice in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, he clearly says that at the parousia, he would send forth his angels to gather the elect. That's those remaining living saints, the elect, who lived through the tribulation, the neuronic persecution. They were still alive. They survived it. 
And here in Matthew 24, verse 31, he says that at his parousia, he will gather them. He'll send forth his angels who will gather those elect ones who were still alive out of harm's way before he poured out his wrath upon the Jews. Well, I think that solves our sequencing problem when we understand how the tribulation figures into this uh, Matthew 24 chapter. There's a very subtle shift there at verse 22, which very few commentaries have caught. And the reason they haven't caught it is because they're futurist, and they don't know that these events have already occurred, so they don't know what the sequence is going to be. We have a huge advantage over them because we know how it all worked out historically, how it was sequenced historically, how it really happened. And we can plug that back into the context of Matthew 24, and it'll help us see how all these flashbacks and flash-forwards and out-of-sequence scenarios are actually supposed to be arranged. And so I think that chart that I gave you will help us an awful lot in deciding the chronological arrangement of these different sections here in Matthew chapter 24 and help us sort it out and come up with the same chronological sequence that we find in Apostle Paul's writings as well as in the book of Revelation. It it has a similar sequence uh, to what we're talking about here, where it talks about the saints being rescued out of the tribulation. Okay, I think that's going to just about wrap it up for this session. Uh, If any of our listeners have questions or comments about what we looked at here, uh, don't hesitate to email me. My email address again is preterist1 at preterist.org. I really appreciate you tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week.